It's time for architecture, coffee, and ink. Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I am here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. So first, Happy New Year's, everyone. Welcome to 2022. Whether you partied it up in NYC or had a nice relaxing holiday away from the work, I hope everyone managed to enjoy it. It's always wonderful to spend time away with friends and family, but the real world is fast approaching for many of us. I've begun to reach out to do more interviews again and thinking about that fast approaching spring semester updating my portfolio website and portfolio and starting to write down all of my previously promised of episodes, bonus shows, and plans for the future. I'm pretty big into delivering promises and working around a schedule, so I should have all of that nailed down in the next week and color-coded for when each episode and subject should be aired. I'm also equally as excited to not use it and change it all up as soon as it's done. I have also started reading a few more books in earnest and looking into topics of social architecture. If you have a recommendation or a suggestion for a book or a paper, let me know. So this week, I'm gonna be talking about Anchor and Anchor Wat in Cambodia. And yes, those are actually two different things. So this location is actually 100% on my bucket list of locations I would love to study in person. Whether whatever poor unfortunate soul I managed to drag with me is probably going to have to use a crowbar to pry me off the grounds and get me back to the airport on time. But that is neither here nor there. Now, before we dive into the site itself, sites, we need to take a second and talk about the history and the people. As many of you have guessed, that is one of my favorite parts of understanding architecture and sites. To me, the idea of breaking down what led to the construction of the place and the people is equally as important to understanding how and where the walls are positioned and the way that the joints come together. So this site was actually underneath the Kumar Empire in what is currently Cambodia. And if you use Instagram or any social media feed, you've probably seen a picture of it. Something that we will get back to a little bit later in the episode. So because we do have some younger listeners now who may not be as familiar with world geography, 
I'm going, I am referring to the area of Asia that is underneath China and east of India by Thailand and Vietnam. While the Kumar Empire stretched out beyond the borders of modern Cambodia, Angkor, Angkor, I don't know why I said Angkor, Angkor, the capital, was located to the north of the Great Lake. The empire had borders that stretched from the Gulf of Thailand and the South China Sea. I've actually included some music I found on Freesound that is considered to be from the Kilmer in the background of the episode at times. So if you want to check it out, please do. As always, my links will be li- li- listed on the blog page. If you want to hear more, that's a good place to start. Overall, the Kilmer Empire lasted from 802 CE to 1431 CE. And many of the themes we discussed in the Maya and Monroe episode are going to be repeated here as well. War and trade were a huge driving factor between the development of the culture. The constant influx of people and ideas being brandied about resulted in some pretty strong influences. In particular, if you look at the images on the blog of the buildings and the temples, you can really pick out where traces of the surrounding kingdoms may have played a huge role. However, the ruler, J. Javara Harman, the second was the man who really kicked off the empire in 802 CE. He started at his home city, believed to be Java, and marched through the area until he landed on Angkor, taking the title of Chakravartin and establishing himself as a god king. Now, the idea that the kings are either a representation of the gods or ruling by divine right is not something particularly new in the world as a whole, or even that the idea that the king is a god. Prior to the formation of the god-king's rule, all of the people would have been in much smaller grouping, whether as after his campaign, it is an empire. Underneath their god-kings, they began to build Angkor Wat in 1122, and it was an, it was looted in 1177 by the Chams. Though it was later restored by King Javaharman VII. If you never hear another name in association with the site, remember the second and the seventh. The seventh was the most aggressive builder. I watched like three different documentaries and the seventh was the only name mentioned in all three and the only name I knew before conducting the research. There was actually somewhere around 38 total kings over the course of the whole run, which I, by that I mean the 19th through the 15th centuries. So while there was a lot of history and a lot of it is removed and condensed into documentaries, the second and the seventh are attributed with both the beginning and end of the empire. Even though the seventh was attributed with the massive construction and the start of the height of the city, he is considered by some of my sources as a beginning to the end. It reminds me a lot of the story of Icarus, the boy who flew too close to the sun. 
Anyway, as I mentioned before, the history of the empire was littered with conflict and war. As it happened, attempts at invasions occurred, including the successful one by the Chans from Vietnam, as well as Siam from Thailand. Among the buildings which numbered in the thousands, among which was Angkor Wat, they developed a series of channels and irrigation systems. As many locations in the world, the success of the city and the people was dependent on water and the movement of water around the region. It limited just how far people could move away and where they could grow their crops. The most important, or rather the staple of the diet, would have been rice. Luckily, the empire was exceedingly brilliant at engineering and were able to grow and create and move so much water that the population and size of Angkor swelled into an official metropolitan or metropolis. Unfortunately, that and the changing in religions may have led to the eventual downfall of the empire. In the empire, they would have originally primarily been practicing Hinduism but eventually there was Buddhism as well. Hinduism is what most strongly influenced our site at the start. As with the Angkor Wat, the most famous temple of the city of Angkor is example of the Hindu universe. Now, when I say that a switch to Buddhism was the downfall, I'm not hating on the religion. What I mean is that when the people switch religions, they would no longer have thought of the king as a god, meaning that following his rules was no longer a religious or moral obligation, but a civic duty. The ties to the king would have weakened, as it did for several other cultures around the world. It's one thing to think that you can't rebel against your king without directly offending your gods and condemning yourself for all eternity, and another to vote a human out of power. Another issue leading to the downfall could have been the technology itself. Some of the research I was looking into mentioned how they were studying the rings of trees to determine water levels, droughts, floods, you name it. The engineering of the city was impressive and beyond anything that existed at the time. I mean, it allowed for the, lar the creation of the largest temple in the world. Come on. But it was delicate, meaning if too much water or not enough was around, the channels and sprawl of people would have backfired on the empire. No regular maintenance because you maxed out your resources or built too much to maintain, and suddenly you would have rice farmers and entire communities dependent originally on fishing as a primary food source without any of it. These are even diseases and the ties coming in and sacking the region and carrying off the harem and wives all could have attributed to the eventual collapse of the empire. Now, here's the part of the story or all stories of architectural sites that I struggle with. So in 1431 CE, we know that the Thai invaded and that the empire was officially labeled as done, capital letters. However, locals and some people would have moved, to, moved away or closer to the water or just lived locally next to the city. 
much like we discussed in previous episodes. Cambodia actually has a monsoon season and a dry season. So for roughly eight months, it's going to be completely dry. Hence why the channels were needed. And the rest of the time you get monsoons and storms. This combination of flooding and dry wreaked havoc on the ruins and allowed for the whole of the complex to eventually get swallowed up by the jungle. But in 1860, M. Henry Monot would rediscover the city and more importantly, Anchor Wat. He was a start of a series of studies and reconstruction efforts that would continue into today. Now, unfortunately, he had his problems as he was apparently looking for bugs when he found the city. So like clearly no one's perfect. But he was also rumored to not be a fan of colonialism and was willing to at least consider while being, quote, blind instruments of boundless ambition, end quote, was a bad thing. Now, to be honest, that passage was taken from his books and included on his Wikipedia page. But in regards to the books, I haven't read them. So I genuinely cannot speak of how much it makes sense within the larger context of the travel journals as a whole. I have only read a few excerpts and translations of just chapters, but not the whole three to four volumes that I know were published. I also tend to not trust translations until I can see copies of the original text. I had a language teacher teach us the value in that, and let's just say it's a hard learned lesson that I soon won't forget. But this brief history leads us into our site today. So you will see it online as both a Buddhist temple and a Hindu temple. And the answer to which one it is, is yes. It was built Hindu and it was converted into Buddhist. So depending upon the source and where they're getting their information, kind of leads you to the way they view it. To me, it is both. You really can't exclude one part of the history and even now, you're not supposed to show knives and soldiers when visiting the site. So it was originally built around 113 BC and is believed to have taken roughly 30 years. It was originally dedicated to Vishnu and was started by King Suryavarman II. The city of Angkor because remember, we are talking about two things, the city and the individual temple. But the city is roughly 400 square kilometers and is part of the UNESCO protected sites underneath the name Angkor Archaeological Park. The part that gets me is that this region covers temples, channels, and is so large that in 1994, they had to ask NASA to get LIDAR from space to see it all. Like the scope and the size of something that big that is not often talked about in schools is insane. So on to the architecture itself. As I mentioned before, Angkor Wat is the largest of the temples. 
it still has an incredibly square moat and square building that was built structurally with laterite and then covered in sandstone so incredibly and perfectly carved that one of the sources says you wouldn't have been able to get a piece of paper through it. Now, when it was rediscovered in 1860, it was crumbling and would have had trees growing in it. Like one of the most famous and frequently re-blogged slash re-photographed moments. I would have been incredibly surprised if you hadn't seen a picture of the temple in the middle of the jungle with a tree growing into it, kind of like Davy Jones style. The infamous towers resemble lotus buds, and the entirety of the temple is carved in breathtaking reliefs. So breathtaking that having tourists keep their hands to themselves remains a pretty big problem, which is especially horrible when you realize that the restoration started way back in 1860, and this temple is somewhere around 900 plus years old when they found it. Again. The temple itself is a representation of Mount Meru, the home of the gods, and is oriented to the west. In the vast reliefs cover all of the site, which is an, and the whole site is a mixture of three galleries, four towers, a central spire, moat, and outer wall. Now this is just the Anchor Wat itself that I'm talking about right now. Now, in popular culture, it remains a pilgrimage site and is on the Cambodian flag. Additionally, it is covered in Sanskrit, which has been translated and is being studied to help understand the people and the history of the location. An additional source for information has come from Zhao Dogen, who visited for a long time, I think they said somewhere's around a year, and recorded his observations in a journal or travel logs during the 13th century. However, if you read any of his writing, please use your critical thinking skills. According to one of my sources, he was, quote, prone to flights of fancy, end quote. I think that's at least how they said it. I was pretty funny to listen to. Apparently, he believed that a Chinese architect built the entire temple in a single day. And was only prone to exaggerate slightly. He also apparently called his hosts mean names, uh, like barbarians or unsophisticated, and thought they were doing life wrong. He was basically picking and choosing what he agreed with, and what he didn't, and justifying it based off of his own experiences and beliefs. To be fair, he did include information about the punishment systems and the discipline used, and was a weird mixture of hyper-vigilant in recording exactly what he saw and including his own experiences. I really doubt he's planning on some chick in 2022 throwing shade his way. When he was writing this, so I guess we really have to take that into account. I saw in another source that he supposedly thought it was a god that built the city in a day, but I decided to quote the Nat Geographic version where they just said he was a Chinese architect because they also included other sources and quotes from him, so I trust it as a better source than the second. 
Within the architecture itself, the combination of the buildings and the moat would represent water and mountains, and each tower would have been an oligov. Be careful looking at plans online. The structures are actually several levels, and at times they are often three or more, with the tallest tower reaching 213 meters or 699 feet. When I was looking for plans, I noticed that several were fan-made, not architect or archaeologist, and the denotions were not always consistent. So some of you, you could really tell were confused about which level was above the other and kind of marked them randomly based off of their own denomination system. Not all of them did, but just remember, check your sources, check your facts, and more importantly, check me. Make sure you use more than one source and compare all of the information available. This site is currently included on the Wonders of the World by UNESCO and was inscripted in 1992. And since then, tourism has dramatically increased. It may still be a site of worship, but the feats of engineering, architecture, and design showcase a civilization that was quite frankly years ahead of its time. Soaring within just a city to a size of London or Los Angeles. Encompassed through a series of gateways and causeways, quadranting off spaces, this is a marvel to behold. The reliefs encompassing the structures include battles, scenes of judgment, and gods and demons fighting. Some of them are particular to the king who started the temple, and others are particular to the region with car the religion, I'm sorry, with cardinal directions operating as major points and bas relief workings. And the Corval Domes of the Anchored Thom and the Bay of Built by our favorite guy, the Seventh. To finish out, I will mention that there are several ritual classrooms and teaching modules available online. So if you are interested in learning more than what I can fit into a small episode, I would definitely give that a try. Now, as I finish out, I'm going to do something a little bit more different than normal. I figured I would actually kind of explain it because, or at least describe the site in the pictures, because this is always the challenges of a non-virtual or non-visual media. So the thing about the arches is that they're, or the towers, I'm sorry is that they're designed so that way you can only see them at certain points. So when you go, there's actually an online um, Tourism of Cambodia website, which has, um, basically it looks like it's an excerpt from an actual tour book. And it'll tell you that on this tour book, it lists a plans like where you should stand to have certain views of certain elements and things like that. So I would highly encourage you if you decide to go view this site, or even if not, if you can get a hold of one of those plans, I personally haven't been able to find it yet. Um, I would check those out because the line of sites show how important and how much they thought through the entirety of the design. One of the most common things that they recommend you do when you come to visit of Angkor is that you go during and watch the sunrise. And I think the park actually opens at like 
5 a.m. so you're able to do this. Um, light was extremely important and some of the most famous photographs of it other than the tree in some of the outer temples along the city itself, but maybe not the individual Angkor Wat, show how important lighting is within the city. And when you're looking at all these different um, documentaries and looking at the different ways people explore it, a lot of architects and archaeologists are kind of applying the most advanced ways that they can. There are some that consider themselves aerial archaeologists or aerial architects where they focus on more LIDAR and aerial overviews and to help them figure out what's going on. Some of them are using um, water flow to figure out what happened to the culture and what is. Um, and one of the most important or weirdest things about this is that Anchor Wat faces the west which symbolically would be a direction for deaths, meaning that they would be more likely that this would be a tomb. And so like learning little things like why it's focused on the west instead of the east and things like that is really important. So looking first at the um, different photos, You'll notice when looking through a lot of like the central courtyard photos that there is layering that is very, very close, clearly visible. And they did a lot of levels and building up and steps. And for me, the most notable about the Bodis, the, the Lotus Buds up top, I'm sorry, I just can't talk today, is how the beautiful reliefs kind of create that look of um, petals coming down and next to the water as it is um, with the moat surrounding it. And most of the pictures you can see lotus blooms in them and it really complements each other very, very well. Like you can really see the amount of thought and care they put into this. The endless corridors in the photos is absolutely astounding with how long and how large of an area this is, the Anchor Wat, you can really see a ton of photos that it just looks like you're looking like down an endless corridor. And what I think it reminds me most of is when you were a kid and you put three mirrors together and you sat in the middle and you could just see the mirrors reflecting off of each other and it just looked like you were looking into infinity. Another added idea is that Anchor Wat serviced as a mandalas, which is comes out a lot more in um, Indian and Hindu uh, influences, and it focuses that the the temple should be according to the rising sun and the moon, and symbolizing time sequences and things like that. So this is something that kind of appeared to, um, paired very well with the Maya episode because they also had a calendar as well that was focused on cycles. But my all-time favorite photo of the sites are the ones where it's lit up in the sky. Um, it looks like the domes are just absolutely glowing with light and the reliefs just come out in this just like beautiful ombre tone 
and I just absolutely love it. Like I said, absolutely part of my bucket list, what I would love to explore. But thank you everyone for being so understanding of me traveling this past weekend. It's my last trip for quite a few days. So I will be able to recuperate from my long drive and get my head back into architecture. But once again, a big thank you to all my listeners. I am now on iHeartRadio, so for those who are asking, it is officially a thing. I know I say this every week, but please rate and review. I really can't do it without you, and I can't share it as well as by myself as I can from you. So whoever you think needs a little bit of architecture in their life. If you want more episodes or longer ones or even shorter ones, let me know. We again have a Facebook page and a private group, both of which are under the same name, Architecture Coffee and Ink. And architectureinc.design.blog is the website and everything will be linked into the show notes. Have a wonderful new year. And as always, may your coffee mugs be full and your inkwell never run dry.